Good morning, everybody. Attention, attention. We'll go ahead and get started. I want to welcome everyone to study this morning. Before we get going, uh, Pastors Steve and Kurt are in Kansas City for a pastoral type of conference. I think they go every quarter. So that's where they are. Before I was in Kansas City recently. The draft. Oh, yeah. I think that's where they went. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's where they really are at the draft. Before we pray, Kurt, you have an announcement. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Billy Freeby, Dave Hill, and myself are three quarters of the Habitat for Humanity uh, standing construction team. A couple years ago, that team was about eight to ten people big, and then Billy showed up and they started shrinking for some reason. But anyway, if you or anyone you know has rough carpentry skills and they'd like to use them to serve God by serving His people, we absolutely could use the volunteers. Uh, we meet Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings, work from 8 30 till noonish. Um, and if you can't be there on certain days, it's not that big a deal. But we could darn sure use some additional help. So if you or anybody you know likes doing that kind of thing, get in touch with us or get them in touch with us. And we'll get them set up to help. Thank you. Monday, Wednesday, Fridays when y'all meet. I got four you can add to the list. Not every day, but probably Fridays. We did that back to St. Louis. Doesn't mean it's the Kurt, do you ever do anything uh, like a, on a Saturday, or is it just Monday, Wednesday, Friday? Like it, it... the standing team is Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Okay. Um, during the spring, summer, fall, they have a lot of large volunteer groups come in. Okay. If you want to participate in that, you're welcome too. But the standing construction team is Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We do the prefab on the walls. Okay. Um, usually they'll have a large group come in that stands the walls. Uh, we do the siding. We do soffit fascia. We install dead wood inside the house. Uh, that kind of stuff. We don't get on roofs. One of us has a pretty obvious reason. Uh, Some of us don't have. Yeah, we we have one volunteer that will get up there. Uh, we don't do sheetrock, electrical, plumbing. It's all construction and construction. Power tools. Okay, eight thirty to twelve on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. Okay, all right. Thank you. All right. Well, this morning we got Gary and myself. Um, he he's really the A team, so I'm going to be bolting on him in a little bit. I've got to take my get my daughter and. Got a school thing this morning, but before we start, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. So we start studying the Word. Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We just pause. Uh, we do give you thanks for this day. We thank you uh, for really for causing us to get up this morning, giving us breath, and another day to to live life, to serve you. We remember just the words, Lord, uh, may our prayer be your will be done. Uh, no matter how hard it is at times, um, maybe to stay close to you, Father. And we ask you to guide us in our studies. We 
study Mark and study the, the truth you have for us. We'd apply it to our lives. We'd be changed, changed for your glory. Show people who you are by how we live our lives. And we just thank you for your grace and mercy and how good you are to us, Father. We pray in your name and everyone said, Amen. Amen. All right. And no comparisons to Steve and Kurt, you know, trying to vote them. Amen, brother. <laughs> we are going to go be back in Mark 9 this morning. We ended up on at verse 29, or we finished verse 29, but we're going to start there this morning. That passage of scripture, the you know the, the the boy possessed by a demon, the father coming to Jesus, the disciples trying to do it themselves, they cannot. And I just last week was one of the best uh, teaching moments I've heard on on that passage of Mark. Yeah, I just used the yeah just arrow over there. There you go. Um, that starts at twenty nine, but even before then. Remember, the father is desperate, and I think he, one of y'all said, or Kurt said last week, maybe one of the Kurt said, I don't remember for sure who said it, but um, that really the hero of the story was really the father, right? I mean, uh, it's, the most, it's the most raw truth, you know, help my unbelief. I mean, that's, I think that's where we got to be at, right? Um, and then, then Pastor Kurt spent some time on this, and I really appreciated him doing this. And I want to go back and visit it for a little bit before we really get into it this morning. But as Jesus ends in verse 29, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. He talked about faith and the kind of the misteachings over time and that are still present today about, well, you just have to have enough faith, right? What, what, you know, we, we pray, we ask God, well, why didn't you, why wasn't my son healed or why didn't you save my, you know, wife or whatever that is? Uh, did I have enough faith? And so it's not just about the, the faith itself, it's, but the, it's the, I like Kurt's words, it was the endur- endurance of our faith, right? Uh, that it's gotta be, um, quantity or, or just endurance, perseverance. Um, because how many of you in your life have just begged God to do something for you? I'm not talking about promotion at work or, I mean, that's certainly valid, but I mean, it, other life and death kinds of things. I can remember on a hospital, and you know, Steve's always encouraging us. I'm going to throw Steve under the bus here. You know, it's always good to be vulnerable, Ken. So I'll just be vulnerable and tell y'all. Most of y'all don't know this. Most probably none of y'all know this, but I remember at a, being on my knees at a hospital floor, just begging God to save our twins that were born at 22 weeks, and up all night reading scripture. Praying with my wife in Lubbock at the at the uh, um, birthing center there, and you know at the end of the day it's like it was no, you know. So it, it's really tough, and so especially when you have people come to and tell you, well, you know, you didn't have enough faith, or it's because y'all did y'all were using you know technology to help your wife get pregnant, you know, um, that's God's judgment over you. People said those things, so. And you have a you know a seminary degree. You, you you should know some of this stuff. But last 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 Tuesday morning, sitting there, I was so appreciative of Kurt saying that because uh, even parishioners that I've had over the years that they would counsel, what why you know why wouldn't God do this? And you know I, I don't know. It's not. I don't think it's your faith, but it's just this this dynamic of keep keeping on. 
Um, and so I was, I was just directed in my uh, thoughts to, to John 15. So would y'all, if you've got your Bibles, and I don't have it on the screen, I apologize, but just flip over to John 15 for a minute. I used to love preaching on this um, passage, and I'm going to try not to preach this morning. So if I do, Gary's going to stop me. As y'all are, are aware, uh, John 15, this is, this is the last moments with the disciples. Uh, there is stress in the room. There is, um, you know, it's dark. Uh, and then Jesus says these words in the opening verses of 15. I am the true grapevine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't bear fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce the fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. So in those those verses, what what is the what's the repeat word? Remain. Remain. And the other the other the more common translation is what is abide, right? Um, that Greek word meno is where we get our word ultimately remain. Uh, just simply really means to dwell. And I think that, that's the issue. I, I found this picture of uh, Peter, and this goes back to the, the familiar scene we know of him walking on water, but then he's doing what here? <laughs> he's, he's halfway in, right? He's going down. Um, but this whole concept of what it, what it means to remain with God, and Jesus tells them, "Without me, you can do nothing." So again, I was just thinking about our faith, and it's not just this simple belief, but it's just also the enduring part, right? It's for the long haul; it, it keeps on keeping on. And so, as we start this morning's study, what uh, what does that mean to you all? I mean, what what are your thoughts about that? And are we, you know? Where are we at? Are we are we abiding with Jesus? Y'all have thoughts about that? I think it jumped out at me on this John 15 just reading was you know it's an analogy to a fruit tree. Well fruit tree doesn't produce fruit cane. You know, it takes time, it's a back to your endurance thing, it's a it's a long game mm-hmm. You got to grow the tree before you grab the fruit. Yeah. And then Staying connected, I mean, for the the branches, right? Then um, it's not just us, but again, abiding with the Lord, who's done what? He's the one doing the pruning, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And going back to to Peter here, just the whole, you know, again, uh, he took his eyes off Jesus, and what happened? He starts sinking. 
And it's just an incredible act of faith on his part just to get out of the water because as Kurt reminds us, and you read Jewish history, they, they were not water people. They did not like the water. You hear this comment when, the, when Jesus tells them, uh, you make one of these little ones stumble, it's better off if someone put a millstone around you and you were cast into the sea. That invoked great fear. It's like he was making a point there, but they had a very healthy fear of the water. Um, so for Peter just to get out and do that is, you know, amazing, but taking his eyes off the Lord. So as we start this morning in, in Mark 9, that's, that, those were my thoughts just starting out and just to kind of get us back into it. Any other questions on that passage? I just love that passage in Mark. Again, mainly because the Lord helped my unbelief. You know, I want to believe Wesley, Wesley would say pre- preachers would come to him, say, what if, what, what if I don't have faith? And he would say, keep on preaching faith till you have it. And I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, you would, you need to um, preach to yourself. <laughs> preach yourself to keep on having faith. So, any questions before we go on? How many of you have been through an experience like Peter's that you thought you were sinking and you didn't know how you were going to get back up? Just to show hands, because I want anybody else to look around and yeah. see how many hands are up. It's, it's, it's here, we just have to listen to it. So, Ken, when you lost your twins, uh, did you see it as a test of faith? Did it strengthen you? Did it weaken you? Uh, was it set back? And how did, how did you recover? It was uh, probably a little of, of everything. Um, I. I viewed it as um, my grace is sufficient for you, and it, not not so much a test, but just the Lord was still there, um, and I took it as Him just saying no at that time. Um, I mean, it was hard, definitely, uh, but I just kept on believing, and the Lord just yeah. I, I, I'd imagine, well, I know it was harder for Michelle because um, it just it took so much to get to that point. That point, and just to lose them like that. So, um, but it was like I think it was all in. It was this multi-layered, Tim. Yeah. Um, part of the plan. Huh? Yeah. Part of God's plan. Yeah. Um, and it, you, you know, that's that's pretty loaded, right? You could like, wow, was that Lord? Was that your will, Lord? But no, I don't. I just, yeah, it's really tough. So, but. You know, you can go back and look at all kinds of, well, we probably not ever adopted, would have gone to China and adopted kids from China. I mean, there's just no telling. So you can unravel all that. But, but the Lord, we just, I mean, I was just, my heart was driven to really seek Him more and to stay connected to Him. And that's, that's what we did. So it's, but it was, it was still hard. So sinking down in the water, uh, definitely. But I just remember just kind of begging God, you, you've got to make this happen, but no, wasn't to be. Yes, sir. Uh, my wife, wife and I went to bed one Sunday night at Manhattan. We woke up the next morning and we were mom and dad. Sister and her husband caught up in a murder-suicide Actually, I found the next day, and I had to just ask God every day, "What, what do I do for this kid?" She was ten and a half. Unfortunately, she had started school at Middle Christian in the fourth grade, 
Karen Harrell Grace, right? I mean, God's, yeah. I didn't do it without God's help. I'll take that. That's right. Yes, sir. Yeah. My wife today tells me, she said, well, you guys were blessed that she came potty trained. <laughs> she didn't come with any instructions. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> so hard but it's yeah God's grace I mean that's the only way we can make it is he's holding us up um, y'all ready to move, move forward okay well let's what's that back to Mark alright so we're transitioning in uh, verse 30 30 leaving that region they traveled through you want to do that do you mind thank you, thank you Gary they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there. Again, that's we see that with Jesus, right? He's not. I mean, he he needs that time with his disciples. For he wanted to spend more time with the disciples to teach them. He said to them, "The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead." They didn't understand what he was saying. However, they were afraid to ask him what he meant. When Jesus gives these revelations, I, Gary and I were talking yesterday about this. It, you know, I like John's parallel. John will throw these comments in, like after there's this this bomb that's been dropped when he says this to them, then he'll say they didn't understand it, but then later they got it right. Um, the hind, it's, not, it's not just hindsight; it's just you know we look back at this and it's like how could they not see it? But um, again, it's it says a lot that he he wanted that time. He went time alone to pray, but then he also just wanted that time of teaching with the disciples and to have that time and then. And telling them something like this, you don't, we don't get the insight into their mind at that time what they were thinking. Um, other than they were just probably, you know, mortified by this, right? What, what you know, what is he talking about? Um, it's like there's just, there's just no response. Like they're just, they're thinking about it. Uh, and they were, and it's, uh, Mark says here, they were afraid to ask him what he meant. Uh, they just kind of let it, let it be, I guess. What's that? Mark uses that book in quite a bit. They didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. 
But you know, you have to have to take it historically in the context too. It's like you said, we're looking at things now. We see everything. We know everything. I think we know everything. But how many messiahs had been there before Christ? To include John the Baptist, and yet none of them survived. So they're still looking for that proof of concept that says, okay, I'm, I'm really the one. Do you believe me? And they all nod their heads, but they don't know what to ask, how to ask, how to check it. Yeah. Any questions over that little, those just few verses? All right. Well, I'm gonna, Gary's going to take it away because I'm getting ready to... To leave. He's going to go be father. Yep. Uh, there's some interesting points, comments that are in. Okay. Yeah, it's on now. Okay. Uh, so they get to this point that he needs some time and he knows where he is. He's just told him that he's on the three days He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be killed. And then again, he'll come back in three days. So they've probably heard that several times before. But it's important that they be alone because he's about to go into a teaching mode with them. A severe, serious teaching mode. And we'll talk in a few verses a little more about the detail on that. Uh, he also talks about the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Um, he told, he stated that back in Mark 8 verse 31, and now here he is, they're departing Galilee and they're beginning their trip to head to Jerusalem, and they're on the way to dest- the destiny that Jesus is speaking of, so he has to kind of keep repeating what's going on so they understand what is happening. And then he finally says, or in verse 32, but they did not understand what he meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. Uh, this one's always a good one and we kind of touched on it. They just couldn't quite, I think the apostles couldn't quite process what Jesus was saying about his destiny, uh, particularly uh, in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? They had spent the entire ministry predominantly in northern part of Judea and Galilee, in and around Galilee. They're now about to go to Capernaum. And Capernaum, if you put a map in your mind, at the top of the Galilean Sea on the northwestern corner is where Capernaum is. And Capernaum was kind of the start point for the road to go down through the valley, down to get into Jerusalem. So he's at the finish point, the start of the finish point at any rate. But they couldn't quite understand, and they just were not willing, or they were too afraid to ask the question. Well, uh, give us a little more detail on that. So then they get on their way to Capernaum. And as they're making the trip down the road, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Now this is, it almost seems kind of ironic to find this in the Bible, that it would talk about uh, the apostles trying to decide whom was the greatest. Uh, you know, you could look at it and say, pretty simple answer. Jesus could just tell them, well, I'm the greatest. That's the end of the question. Now, what's the next thing you want to talk about? But they kept quiet. They were 
afraid to ask. It was, and it was, he's now put them on the line. He's called them out. He's, he knew what they heard, what they were talking about on the road. He's figured out what they were talking about and he's put them to the test. Tell me what you were talking about. What was so important? But they kept quiet. And most Bible historians that I've read say that this was uh, translated as basically take it into the, as if Kurt was here, he would tell us what the Greek and the Aramaic and the Hebrew and uh, uh, ten other languages it translates to. But basically it was an embarrassed, embarrassed silence. They were caught. It's kind of like the two-year-old with their hand in the cookie jar and they got caught. But Mama didn't say, I caught you. Mama said, well, what were you doing in the kitchen? And so they're embarrassed. They don't know how to answer the question that he's putting to them because they're ashamed of what they were doing and because of their individual obsession on who was the greatest, who was going to be the one to sit at the right hand and the left hand. And it it's kind of a healthy shame in a sense uh, because it indicates that at least their drawing back and their their hesitation is that maybe some of the message that Jesus is trying to get to them is beginning to get through. And then he finishes in 34 with uh, the last portion, but they kept silent for on their way they had argued about one another about who was the greatest. That was seemed to be, if, if you note, this comes up quite a few times in the history, in the Bible. Uh, even with James and John coming up and asking who gets to sit at your right hand and who gets to sit at your left. It was apparently a fairly constant topic amongst the disciples, all jostling for position. Uh, they all counted on the Messiah Jesus that they were with to take over the world as king. And the debate was who was going to be the next executive in line behind him, who was going to be the COO, who was going to be the vice president, who was the one that was going to do what Christ uh, wants them to do. So they're not still not capturing, not gathering what Christ's message of dying and rising again three days. They don't haven't accepted and probably will not accept up until they see him out of the tomb that he was going to come back. There was going to be a resurrection. Then he goes into the, a section, about three verses, that talk about the greatness of in the kingdom of God. He sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, there's some real important stuff buried in here. Setting down, Jesus called the twelve. When a rabbi sat down to preach, when a rabbi sat down, came to give a proclamation, he sat down. When a teacher was going to teach a class, they sat down. It wasn't standing up, walking around orations. So when we think of teaching in the rabbinic sense, in the messianic sense, Picture your table, and that's what it would have been. A small group, a rabbi would come. They wouldn't be sitting at tables and chairs. They'd be sitting on the ground or sitting on low cushions, and in most cases lounging around and talking. But when the rabbi came and sat down, it's time to sit up and listen. 
because he's now got something important that he's about to tell the people that have gathered together to listen to him. So he's set that stage now to get their attention that this is serious, guys. It's time to quit. We we don't have the crowds with us. We don't have everybody hanging around. Uh, we're not doing miracles right here. The miracle is about what I'm about to do with you. And then he goes on and he says, uh, anyone would be first. He must be the last of all and the servant of all. Now picture them trying to figure that out in their minds. That's almost a tongue twister when you get right down to it. That how do how does that affect us? How does that affect the ministry that you've brought for us? What he's trying to get them to understand is the question goes back to the statement: Who would be the greatest? Uh, Jesus could have answered the question uh, and settled it all. He was the greatest, is the greatest. Uh, so he was the very last and the servant of all. He was really describing himself when he says that. But he challenges, challenged the apostles and he challenges us every day to be the very last of all. Now that is just not in human nature, if you will. We always want to be the first. We always want to be the top. We always want to be the one getting the recognition. And Christ is telling them, you can get the recognition, but your recognition is going to come in heaven from God, from the Father. It's not what happens down here. It's not how much recognition you get. It's how much recognition you give to those people that are seeking, that are looking for the faith. And he challenges everybody always, constantly in his writings, in our readings, uh, to be the servant of all. The world may think of this as greatness, being great. But God does not. He declares that true greatness is shown not by how many serve you, but how many you serve. Now, I'll I'll tell you, I'll share with you. um, Those of us that came over from First Methodist and even from St. Mark's, uh, when all this disaffiliation stuff stuff started, uh, we were leaving a church for sure, but most of us, a lot of us, didn't know where we were going. The first time I came here, Susan and I came here and sat in that sanctuary and listened to Kurt and Steve do a, what did they call preach teaching? It was like, like what I almost envisioned here. I was not being lectured to. I was not being liturgized from a pulpit, from a, uh, I was listening to a conversation and having Kurt paint that picture mentally that you're there, you're on the ground, you're in the wherever it is that these words are coming from. And then when he's got you there and he's got you immersed in what's happening, then Steve coming in with the spiritual impact of what was happening then. And all of a sudden, those words of spiritual faith, those teachings really hit a lot harder, really take a lot harder. And whether it's on Sunday morning in any of the three services, whether it's on Tuesday mornings in here or on Wednesday nights, uh, I used to think I had a pretty good grasp on biblical history. But if you ever look at my Bible, which I carry, have carried this one for a long time, but it is filled with notes that I never had in there until I got here. Because I have yet to go to a session 
with those two, either one of them, that I'm not writing notes as fast as I can write notes because it's, gosh, I didn't think about it that way. Or I hadn't heard that before. Or that's a whole different look to what I thought the words were telling me. And it makes me want to go back, go home, and lay all this stuff out and figure out how do I do it. You know, there's a debate right now that we're going through uh, in the churches, uh, all of the churches, I'm sure. But we are no longer United Methodists. We are no longer using the New Revised Standard Version, which is our standard United Methodist Pew Bible. That's going to go away. So what version are we going to use as the principal version for this church for posted liturgy, for what the pastors would be preaching from? Is it going to be English Standard Version? Is it going to be the New Living Translation? Is it going to be the New International? Don't know. So it's fortunately, I think, for at least my benefit, is when I put a class together, when I write something or study something, I try not to limit myself to one source. I may have 6, 8, 10, 12 Bibles or Bible references that I'm using and checking back and forth. And if I find two or three that are pretty tight with each other, then that's kind of where I center my teaching point and explain it and expound upon it that, you know, here's kind of what I came together with. But there's so many different ways that the words presented to us. And it's just present. I'm telling you from my perspective, it's presented differently here than I've ever seen it in any other church. And I have been an executive director at three large, two large churches, one in Virginia, one in Colleen, and then worked uh, at, extensively at St. Luke's. But I've never seen a church function like this church functions, like this church functions like I think Christ wants it to function, that he wants us to function, that we rule, we govern, we learn, we teach together. It's not a go and do the New Testament scripture, the Old Testament scripture, sing nine hymns and three solos, and then hear a standard liturgy right out of the liturgical guide that the pastors are using. It's something different every week. It's a different perspective every week. And particularly doing it in the themes like we're doing here, taking Mark and the journeys that uh, surround Jesus' trip as explained in Mark. So he's got them in in the mode. He's got them thinking that, okay, you're here to learn something. Now, the next thing he does is probably the most significant in this whole session. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them. Now, why put a kid, we're talking a little kid, in the middle of this cluster of guys sitting around on the floor, sitting around on the dirt, uh, waiting to hear a great revelation? And what does the great pastor, the great Messiah do? He brings a child in and puts the child right in the middle of them. Kind of unusual. But then he takes him in his arms, and now he's about to address his apostles through the eyes, through their eyes seeing this child. And this is probably the strongest message in this whole sequence in 9 through 10, up to 10, where he's trying to get the message across to them. And I'm not going to try to dummy it here. I want to read you a couple of things on it. He took a child whom he placed among them. 
Jesus drew their attention to his teaching by presenting a child as an example. In that day, in his day, children were regarded as mere property more than individuals. It was understood that they were to be seen and not heard. Jesus said that the way we receive people like children shows how we receive him. Now, if any of those apostles sitting in that group didn't have children or had had this demeanor of wife, servant, it's your job to take care of the kids when they're old enough to do whatever the skill is or whatever the trade is that I practice, then I'll become concerned with them. But he's telling them, look at this face and you are looking basically at the face to face of God and you are looking at the face of the people of God. And if you can't look on this child and have as much love for him as you should have for all of those in this group and all of those people that we're going to minister to, then you got a long road. It's going to be harder than Peter walking on water to get where you need to go. Taking the child in his arms. Children are not threatening. Why would he do that? Children are not threatening. Uh, very few of us, maybe not in some areas, but very few of us are afraid of meeting a five-year-old in a dark alley. Children are not good at deceiving. For those of you that are parents, it doesn't take much to catch them and to get get it out of them if they've done something. But the disciples, the apostles, could. They could back off and say, well, I don't know. Or they could just keep silent. And because they were adults, they could almost sometimes get away with it. But then he goes on and he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, that's a lot of words and a lot of little circles. But what's the bottom line? Who is he talking about? He's talking about God. God's the one that sent him. God's the one that sent that little baby, that little child. And God's in image is there and if you can look at him or you can look at any other grown adult and have that same empathy that same concern for that older person as you can for that child then you're looking in the face of god sometimes that can be awfully hard to do driving in here this morning on 250 when i feel like i'm in the middle of the indianapolis 500 uh, it's can be hard to watch idiots drive by dangerously too fast and in and out of lanes and think anything but negative thoughts about them. Not because it impacts on me, but it's me being critical of them and not thinking about what their circumstance might be. Uh, I can have an opinion, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you think about loving a kid, there's... You're going to get love back most of the time, but there's no financial that. There's no information that you're, you're going to quote the latter to loving your kid. This loving your kid is a selfless thing, right? And so that's that's kind of one thing I get at. Yep. You're loving just to love, not necessarily for the benefit of. Agreed. It's not a measured love, is what Christ is trying to tell them. And what God wants us to understand, it's I don't measure my love for any one of you lesser or greater than I do for the others. I might hate you, I might love you, I might not know you, but 
my love for you is supposed to be the same. And love is one of those words that uh, tends to get us all into trouble. What Christ meant when he talks about love wasn't the romantic, uh, expressive love. It was the how I feel about you in my heart and my soul and how I'm going to treat you. And the example of the child is the way he expressed that, the way he put them in place. And he's got them sitting there now, and he's put this, put them in their place, if you will, not only their place on the ground to listen to the rabbi, to listen to the master, to listen to the teacher in a formal manner, do his proclamation, but they've now been faced with, nowhere in the, in the scripture does it say that he sent the child away. So I have to assume the whole time he's having this discussion with his apostles, that child is sitting there in his lap, sitting there as he's talking. And imagine if you're looking and it's not me, it's some little four or five year old or a three year old or I'm holding a child in my arms and you're seeing that child. You might be hearing my words, but you're seeing that child at that point in time. As long as they behave, it's a good example. Uh, if they don't, then it's supposed to be even better a test in Jesus's teachings that good or bad, we love them all the same. Down or up, we love them all the same. If we don't, then we're being judged by our own demeanor. And then now we're going to see some interaction. John's finally going to get involved. He says, pardon? Is it reasonable to say, generally when you see love in the Bible, it's talking about a verb, not a noun. It has much more to do with how we interact and treat people much less to do with how we feel about it. I think so, yes. You know, when we talk about later uh, in when Christ returns and he comes back to the Sea of Galilee and he talks to Peter and he goes through the famous three challenges of Peter, do you love me? In the English Bible, it says, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? In the Greek, when you go back to the Kony original Greek, it's, Do you agape me? Do you love me beyond all all else? And then he asks him again, Do you love me beyond all else? And each time Peter says, Lord, you know that I philia you. Philia means I love you like a brother or like a bud. You're my friend. You're my trusted companion. And philia, there's four different meanings to the word love just in the Greek language. And it gets lost in that little section with Peter's challenging because God keeps asking him, do you understand what my love is? And Peter keeps saying, yeah, I gotcha. And then finally the third time, and again it gets lost in the English translation, Christ comes back and he says, all right, Peter, do you feel you me? He almost kind of sort of gives up on him because he's not getting through to Peter. Uh, Steve's made a good point on the, if you've been here for the Wednesday nights and talking about how Peter was a different Peter when he starts writing first, when he first starts writing his epistles. He's writing as a totally different person than he was when he's being written about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So yeah, I, I do believe that personally. Uh, but it took me a long time to understand that difference in 
why would you ask the same question three times and get the same answer three times and keep asking it until you really dig down into the meat of the, the study, the meat of the word, then it takes on a whole new life. And again, as I said earlier, that's what brings it to life for me with Kurt setting that situation is that those words come to life. Those words now have an importance as if we were sitting here in 33 AD, not in 2023. And I understand what he's asking. I understand what the scenario and what the situation is. And it makes it a much stronger, stronger message for him to do that. But he says, uh, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, here Christ has just set them an example with his child, and the, presumably the child's still sitting right there. And the first being is Peter coming back to him and says, Oh, by the way, by the way, you know, we're still on the greatest topic here. We saw somebody out there healing, and we stopped him because he's not one of us. And so it's not too hard to figure out what Christ's reaction is going to be to this. Because he comes back at Peter pretty quickly. Now, to set the stage, though, there were a number of people out there, a number of men out there that were doing healings. Uh, Paul spends a lot of time writing about those that were not apostles, but they were out doing healings, people that Paul had, had brought into the ministry. But this man that they're seeing, uh, just from the way John describes him, they are not one of us, is this could have been one of John the disciples, uh, John the Baptist disciples, or one of Jesus' 70 disciples originally. Remember, he sent out 70 initially to go out and minister. Not all 70 are still there together in this little group that's now moving through Capernaum. So was it someone who had the faith, just was not traveling with the crowd anymore. It wasn't his day to be with the apostles, whatever the case may be. So he was doing good things. He was doing what Christ wanted them to do. So he wants them to do that. And then he goes on and he says, uh, Do not stop him, but no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Now that's that's a different wording. Let me give you that in a different context. For whoever is not against us is for us. Now more and more you hear, quite often you hear, well, whoever's not for us is against us. Now this is just the exact opposite, what Christ is telling his apostles. Whoever is not against us is for us. And there are a number of embedded stories all throughout the following epistles, particularly Paul's, where he talks about how, okay, uh, Paul will write something in Corinthians or in Philippians, and he doesn't like what he's hearing somebody preach in a town or how he's hearing someone shout down uh, Christ's message, the Christian faith. And Paul's attitude was, well, at least they're advertising it. 
at least they're making people think about Christianity. So they are almost as good a spokesman as those of us that are coming along and they can't get to. The word is still being spread. So this is, a, a, I think, a fantastic passage. It just gets better. As it goes down uh, along here, and but we're getting late, so we'll let Steve and Kurt pick that up next week uh, with verse 42. So any questions, comments on anything that we've discussed today? It makes me feel good to see this group seem to get bigger each week. And I... I that's encouraging. I remember the first time I came, it was like 20. And now there's about 30-something in here as a good solid average every Tuesday. Uh, invite some more people. There's still empty chairs and there's still empty tables. And we can sit on the floor and bring in a little kid and see if we can learn something. Okay, let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly and Gracious Father, we thank you for the word that you bring us for the opportunity to study that word, for the opportunity to apply your word. We ask that you be with us, fill us, guide us, direct us, that we may be more like you in everything that we do. Be with our pastors, bring them past travelers' mercies, bring them back to us tomorrow. Be with us, be with those that could not be here today. Be especially with those that need healing care, whether it be physical, mental, psychological, emotional, or whatever. We ask you to do all of these things in Christ's precious name. And the people of God said, Amen. You're welcome. L un well oh thank you it's the wrong but it's uh it's it, they diagnosed it but it, yeah my voice yeah that's what I heard you got it that's a gift people know what you talk
the only thing I'll add to it was it was like going into a college course. But you you nailed it too. But you're a perfect fit. You don't uh, you don't like Steve and um, Kurt. You're so perfect and there's no it's a teaching process. Yep. Which is a beautiful thing. Well, that's how it came to me. So that's how I tried. Well, you didn't, you didn't 